Last weekend was the highlight of the Christian faith, the celebration across the Christian calendar. On a particular Friday, we remembered the fact that Jesus was crucified at the hands of a mob of, of Jewish crowd, Roman authorities, that he was treated like a common criminal and that he was nailed to a cross. A same cross at the same time became our substitute so that because of what he did, our sins could be forgiven and we could receive the righteousness of God. That's Good Friday. A week ago, we gathered together to celebrate the fact that the one who died was resurrected, that he came back to life, that he offers new life to you and to me, and that his example and his power shows us the way to live not only in the present, but gives us a foretaste of how we will be, of the physical body that Jesus had that one day you and I who trust him will share. That's the hope, that's the life, that's Easter Sunday. It's almost impossible to overestimate the impact and the importance of what happened 2,000 years ago, the cosmic significance of what we celebrated a week ago. Those who know the risen Christ rejoice. Those who don't, whether they're confused or considering or hostile, have to reckon with what happened in history 2,000 years ago. That weekend rocked the world. And that weekend showed us the rock upon which we can build our lives. But much as that weekend may have changed the course of history, in case you haven't noticed, it hasn't changed the fact that this world is still fallen. The creation still groans for its renewal. We still live in a world marked by sin and evil and death. We still experience personally the consequences and the temptation of sin. Even as new people, people who trust in the risen Lord, we inhabit bodies, we inhabit contexts that are decidedly broken. So how in the world do people who have been made new spiritually practically live out that new life in Christ in a fallen, broken, sinful world? How does our faith in Christ work in a sin-soaked world? It's as if you and I are living in a split-screen reality. On the one side there, we see the triumphant Jesus. We see his example, his power. We see a God who is victorious. And on the other side of the screen, we see our world, we see our lives, we see the burdens of temptation and of trials and of sin. And how are we supposed to live in a split-screen world where we see what's happened and what is to come and we see what is around us and who we are? Beginning today all the way through mid-June, we're going to incline our ear to one of the first people who grappled with that challenge and that possibility. He wrote a letter to others who were following Jesus, not much more than 12 years after Jesus walked the earth. His name was James. He was the half-brother of Jesus. And his life had been transformed in more ways than you can imagine. And James was adamant that your life and my life can be transformed too. I invite you to turn your Bibles to James chapter 1, one of the last books of the Bible. If you start with Revelation at the end and work backwards, you'll find James in no time. 
James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. On loan, if you just forgot yours at home, for keeps, if you don't own one, just raise your hand. And one of our hosts there in the aisles would be happy to give one to you. You can turn that in when you leave or keep it if you don't own a Bible. James chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to stand. We often do this at Grace in our uh, preaching through passages. We're going to read that together to provide the framework for what we consider this morning. James chapter 1, verse 1. I'm reading from the New International Version. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Thanks for standing. You may be seated. Thanks for honoring the scriptures in that way. And as we begin to look at the book of James, it's helpful to have a bit of an introduction. And James provides that for us in the very first verse. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the half-brother, younger brother of Jesus, who penned this letter. And of all the identities that James could choose, he chose these. Servant of God, doesn't surprise us, a good Jewish man. Servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, which should shock us. That's an interesting way to distinguish yourself from your sibling. And yet that's just what James does. Because Jesus wasn't an ordinary brother. Jesus was James's Lord, his Messiah, his God. Imagine if one of your siblings said that about you or you about them. Imagine if you admitted it. Here James does that. No inhibitions, no reservations, and tons of credibility to speak to us about who his brother, his half-brother, Jesus, was. James identifies his readers here to the 12 tribes scattered among the nation's greetings. Literally, this is the 12 tribes of the diaspora, the scattered ones, the dispersed ones. We get a word from that. These are Jewish followers of Jesus, what we call today Messianic Jews. These are people who are opposed, who are persecuted by their fellow Jews because of their association and their allegiance to Jesus. There may have been other reasons for the scattering, for the dispersion, whether it's poverty or calamity. But the primary reason had to do with how they were treated by their fellow Jews. They ended up all over the eastern Mediterranean world. And we're going to see throughout the book of James all kinds of Jewish themes and backgrounds that have great relevance to us. It's easy for us to think that just because we're not Jews, that this has little relevance to a mostly Gentile audience in 2021 America. But I assure you the themes and the topics are important for us. James had a contemporary, Peter, who wrote the next two letters in our Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter calls his readers aliens, strangers, exiles. He applies the fact that they are not at home 
in their own culture as well. See, to know Jesus means to have an identity not of this world, but from heaven. And that's true of those of us who know Jesus as well. One final word before we dive into the letter itself, the themes themselves. James is a highly practical, highly varied, highly direct letter. Nobody can read James and say, that's not relevant today. Nobody can read James without a certain amount of whiplash because James moves from topic to topic to topic regarding the Christian life. It's kind of a series of little homilies to us. And no one can escape the exhortation of James. James is looking at us sometimes almost with his hand on our collar saying, listen to me, this is what it looks like for you to follow Jesus. And he provides pictures for us along the way. First section in your outline, gracepolaris.org slash program if you want to follow along digitally or in your worship program, perspective and trials. If you have any familiarity with the Bible, you know that there are statements that from a human perspective make absolutely no sense. They sound crazy. They sound impossible. They sound detrimental to our well-being. And many of them shockingly come from the lips of Jesus. Maybe you've heard them. Love your enemies. Go the second mile. Turn the other cheek. Whoever loves his life will lose it. We hear them and charitably speaking, we think, you got to be kidding me. Are you crazy? Are you nuts? James's first statement right out of the gate sounds like that. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Say what, James? And yet James knows and Jesus knows that this is one of the most transformative, transforming realities for our lives and those who watch us. In order to make sense of this bold statement, we have to understand at least two of the words, joy and trials. Let's look at those in reverse order. The word for trials covers a lot of territory in James and in the New Testament. Linguists would say that, that it has a wide semantic range. There are at least two distinct meanings in the New Testament. First is this, an outward trial or a process of testing. That's what we're going to be seeing today. The second meaning of the word is an inner enticement to sin, what we would call a temptation. We'll see that shortly. Remember, James's readers are overwhelmingly Jewish, scattered from their homeland in Israel, having experienced or experiencing a kind of religious persecution. They were suspect in the eyes of their fellow Jews. They were following this Jesus guy. They were odd in the sight of their fellow Gentiles now that they were scattered all around. They didn't share in their pagan Greek background. Those of us who follow Jesus in the 21st century should recognize that we are outsiders as well. Too often, and we've seen this even in recent years, we in America think that because of our religious lineage or because of some of the founding virtues of our country, that our primary identity is here. It is not. When we align ourselves to Jesus... 
all of our other identities are relativized, even minimized in comparison, including our cultural and our national identity. They take a back seat. And the way we live counterculturally in our world, in our society, will invite the backlash of other people. Count on it. But the trials that James mentions here are more than just religious persecution. They are, doesn't it say, trials of many kinds. James casts a wide net. Trials can be some of these. Do they apply to you? Health issues. Financial devastation. Job losses. Death of a loved one. They can be rebellion of a child. They can be family dysfunction. Marital disintegration. Disabilities. Trials can be criticism that wounds you, being ostracized by coworkers, being mocked for your faith, loneliness. Do any of those trials include you? If they do, and they would cover almost all of us, those experiences almost inevitably invite us to ask the question, why? And Christians aren't immune. Too often, many of us have heard the gospel presented in a way that omits this truth. Sometimes, instead of being tempted to ask the question, why less, Christians ask it more. For some reason, we think that because we're following Jesus, that our trials should be fewer and easier. Nothing could be further from the truth. And we're not the first people to struggle with that. You go all the way back to the first followers of Jesus, all the way back to Old Testament saints. And they ask the question, why do the righteous suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? This shouldn't be. Pastor Tim Keller is well known in our day. Pastor in New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. He writes in his excellent book here, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, highly recommended even though I'll admit it's not thin, the following. When we hear of a tragedy, there's a deep-seated psychological defense mechanism that goes to work in us. We think to ourselves that such things happen to other people to poor people, to people who don't take precautions. We tell ourselves that if only we get the right people into political office, if only we get our social systems right, nothing like this will happen again. But pain and misery is the norm in this world. The loss of loved ones, debilitating fatal illnesses, personal betrayals, financial reversals, moral failures, all of these will eventually come upon you if you live out a normal life span. No one is immune. There's your good news for this morning. In other words, with trials, it's not if, it's when. Keller goes on, therefore, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how, how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. No amount of money, power, planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, 
relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. Now, Tim Keller is a godly man. He's a brilliant thinker. And Tim Keller, believe it or not, is a joyful soul. But he's also truthful. Life is hard. He knows it personally. About this time a year ago, he was diagnosed at the age of 70 with pancreatic cancer. There's a wonderful article in the March edition of The Atlantic that describes how he faces his own mortality, his own death as a follower of Christ. He's dished out a lot of input as a pastor. Now, can he take his own medicine? Worth reading. Life is full of trials. And they touch the righteous and the unrighteous. And they will touch each of us. They will touch you and they will touch me. What's our response? Well, the normal response to trials is what? It's to complain. It's to feel betrayed. We experience trials and suffering and hardship. And they feel like an alien invasion to life. A skunk at our life's party. We resist them. We object But James, right out of the gate, commands something shocking. Count it all joy, which is countercultural to say the least. Counterhuman, if we're more realistic. Most people count it all joy when they escape trials, but James tells us to count it all joy in the midst of trials. What in the world, James, do you mean? Let's emphasize first what James does not say. He doesn't say that we must feel it all joy or that trials are all joy. Trials are difficult. Trials cause pain. You know that. James knows that. His readers know that. Instead, James uses the word here, consider. It's a term of assessment, a term of evaluation. It has to do with how we think. It has to do with our perspective. It is the glasses through which we see the world and our circumstances. In short, James says, we will see trials as part of a bigger picture, a bigger picture that includes God. Edmund Hebert writes, to have joy means that we will have a deep-seated confidence that God knows what he's doing and that the results will be for his glory and our good. Do you believe that? We know that trials are not joyful in and of themselves, but they're joyful when we realize that they take place under the authority of a sovereign God. A God who is accomplishing his purposes through them. So we're not told by God, not told by James to grin and bear it. Some kind of fatalistic resignation. We're not told to delight ourselves in the trials, putting on a good face as if we don't suffer from pain. Paul experienced pain. Paul had something that he describes as a thorn in the flesh, something that was painful and persistent in his life. He can relate to you. Here's what he says. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Three times I, Paul, pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he, the Lord, said to me, My grace 
is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Maybe the most noble kind of suffering, hardship, trial is connected to our association with Jesus. And these first readers could relate. The first followers of Jesus could relate. And yet they learned to view their trials in light of God. On one occasion in Acts chapter 5, they were jailed, they were flogged. They were forbidden from speaking of Jesus, which they promptly ignored. And the writer of Acts says the apostles left the Sanhedrin, here it is, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering for his name, the name of Jesus. Somehow amidst terrible circumstances and all kinds of opposition, they chose joy. And chose joy in the midst of health disasters, financial loss, frayed relationships, and more. Because it's not just what we suffer for, it's how we suffer and for whom we suffer. Keller writes again, the great theme of the Bible itself is how God brings fullness of joy, not just despite, but through suffering. James tells us how to respond to trials, to choose joy. Now he tells us how to regard trials as gifts from God. There's great purpose in trials, and the question is, do you see it? James links trials, verse 2, with the testing of one's faith, verse 3. Look at that. Trials are a test. Suffering's a test. And because of how life works, as, as Pastor Zach said this week, suffering is not a test you can cram for. You can't determine the timing and the severity and the duration of your trials. Wish we could, right? We can choose our perspective. We can choose our response. And we can recognize them as tests of our faith as Get this, gifts from God. David said in Psalm 26, verse 2, Test me, Lord. Try me. Examine my heart and mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. David says, God, I want you to see who I am, that I trust you, and that I am tenaciously aligned with you. We remember, for instance, Abraham, who was told crazily in our minds by God to take his promised son up the mountain and to sacrifice him on the altar. And Abraham passed the test. See, in verses 3 and 4, we see a kind of chain in the purpose of trials. First, testing leads to perseverance. It's a statement of possibility, not of certainty. It's possible to face the test or to fail the test, but, but as a believer, we are given the Spirit of God in us so that we will pass the test, so that we can persevere. Some of your Bibles say steadfastness there. They say endurance. Th think of this word as a kind of staying power, as, as a tenacity of spirit that can withstand adverse conditions or circumstances. In my mind, at least, endurance has the idea of 
uh, a little more passive of, uh, of withstanding harsh headwinds, circumstances. Perseverance a little more active to be able to push through obstacles. James incorporates both of them in what he says here. That we can endure, that we can persevere, that God enables us. But look at the second chain there. From perseverance or endurance, the outcome is maturity and completeness. Notice James doesn't write total perfection. This side of heaven, we won't have that. But it, what he means here is a, is a kind of wholeness, a spiritual health, a stability, wisdom in difficult circumstances. Think of it like this. Maturity and completeness are like a large fruit tree that is able to withstand the wind and the rains and the scorching sun and to bear abundant fruit in season because it's deeply rooted in healthy soil. Suffering can refine us rather than destroy us. There's good news. Because God himself walks with us in the fire. In Jesus Christ, we see that God actually experiences the pain of fire as we do. He truly is God with us in love and understanding in our anguish. What's it say in Hebrews chapter 12? That for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. See, if God is our goal, then suffering can be our joy. Our lives need to be rooted in Christ. How is it that believers can react to trials in that kind of unexpected, strange, otherworldly way? Well, it's because we know that God uses them to shape us, to hone us, to mature us. Many of you uh, exercise to stay in shape, to stay healthy. Some of you run, some of you swim, some of you lift weights. And as anyone quickly learns who lifts weights, the key to weight training, the, the key to growing strength, isn't the maximum amount of weight that you can push or lift. It's more the repetition. Your muscles, in order to gain strength, need uh, increasing repetition of resistance. And in doing so, as most of us know, at first it's extremely painful. Your muscles are sore. But over time, over the course of repeated resistance, your muscles develop endurance. They develop strength. They develop shape. That, friends, is what happens when we learn long-term faithfulness to God in the face of, in the midst of, trials. See, the, the difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith. Think of a fire heating it in the crucible of suffering so that impurities might be refined away, so that it might become pure and valuable before the Lord. That author is, is referencing what Peter says himself in his first chapter of his first letter. And he goes into more detail than James does. Here's how it reads. 1 Peter 1.6. Peter tells us, to praise God in light of the new birth into a living hope that we have through the resurrection of the dead, of Jesus from the dead. And in light of that, in all this, he says, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, 
These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Here it's amazing. Though you have not seen him, Peter writes, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. He's talking about in the midst of trials. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This kind of perspective doesn't come just by living or mountaintop experiences or success. This comes especially through the valleys of life. Through all kinds of trials. God works in us and speaks to us, especially in those trials. C.S. Lewis was famous for saying, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. Do you know that? Has God ever used a trial, maybe current, to get your attention? Keller writes, when pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. Many people would say, I always knew in principle that Jesus is all you need to get through. But you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Trials are not God's plan B, they're plan A. God uses trials in your life, in my life, to make spiritual progress in us. And the goal of God is maturity, is completeness. And that takes time and that takes trials. That was true back in the Old Testament. That was true for the first followers of Jesus. That's true for believers around the world. That's true for 2021 Americans. God's purposes in trials are far larger than you probably assume. See, if your ultimate goal is not just to fix your circumstances, and let's be honest, for many of us, that's our goal. But, but rather to know God and to grow in God, God has designed trials for your growth in godliness. Trials are joy when God is our goal. That's a world of difference from saying what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. This is whatever tests you, whatever you receive as an opportunity from God makes you stronger. Many people think that wisdom comes with age, you know, the number of years lived. The older you are, the wiser you get. Make no mistake, I know a lot of older people, including many here at Grace, who are wise, extremely wise. But I also know a number of older people who are bitter who are selfish, who are foolish. Why? Because the number of years lived doesn't bring wisdom. Learning from those years brings wisdom. Similarly, our maturity of character is not the number of trials we've encountered. Most people have encountered far more trials than I have. Many people have encountered far more than you have. Trials alone don't build character. The way in which those trials are met, you allowing God his divine work in you, that builds character. 
So where does that wisdom come from to face trials? How, how do we gain perspective so that we can respond in this way? James addresses that in the final verses. Essential wisdom. And we need a definition Peter Davids writes, wisdom is the possession of the believer given by the spirit that enables him to see history from the divine perspective. We need to be able to see our trials, our, our hardships, not through our own eyes, but through the eyes of God. And James knew that. That's why he writes verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. James launches into this section by stating the obvious, all of us lack wisdom. None of us inherently knows how to live and what God would have us do. The Bible says in Proverbs, the, the Lord gives wisdom. It says also the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if it's associated with the Lord, then we need to ask God for wisdom. Note though that it's not just that God is wisdom, that God gives wisdom. He is a generous giver of wisdom without condemning, without exasperating the one who asks. Notice here, there aren't conditions that you have to prove yourself worthy and then God will give you wisdom to face your trials. And that's a long way different than how we often operate. I know that as a parent, much of what I give is conditional. If you do this, if you achieve that, you can have what you need, what you want. For instance, our children now have phones. There's no right age. We in the Yoder home have decided at age 14 or entering high school that you can get a phone. They think it should be a few years earlier. I think it should be at least age 21. <laughs> but they know that use of their phones is at our discretion. It's conditional. Attitude, obedience, School performance, behavior, or, or take this. Our, our younger son just got his driver's license this week. Word to the wise here. Defensive driving is a wise, wise choice. He knows, though, that it's my car. It's my insurance. It's my permission. There will be no driving unless mom or dad says you can. It's conditional. But God's giving of wisdom is not like that. God gives without conditions, without finding fault for those who cry out to him for wisdom. He gives it because we express our need for it. Do you have need for wisdom? Rather, it's more like food and our children. We give food to our children without conditions. It's not based upon performance or obedience or even attitude. Why? Because they need it. And a good father, a good parent gives that because they need it. God gives us wisdom because we need it. He also gives because we ask for it. And we believe that he has it and that he's willing. See, those who follow Jesus need to see God not as a stingy God, but as a generous God. Hebert writes, it's characteristic of the unbeliever to see God with a clenched fist. God, I'll pry those fingers away so that you'll give me some wisdom. But it's characteristic of the believer to see God with an open hand that God gives generously. Do you believe that? God gives without ulterior motives. 
He doesn't give so that he gets something in return. He doesn't attempt to insult us or humiliate us or mock us. In fact, when he gives, we wonder, why didn't we ask earlier? James concludes here with some stern words for how we ask. Here's how you and I should ask, he says. We should believe and not doubt. We should believe that God is powerful, that he can give wisdom, that he has it. And we should believe that God is good, that he wants us to have wisdom. That may not determine when we receive it or how we receive it. But it does recognize that God can and God wants to give wisdom and will. Do you believe that God can and will give you wisdom? Is there a situation in your life right now, a trial, that you desperately need God's perspective? Believe, James says, don't doubt. Because if you do, he has a picture, an outcome, and an indictment for you. The picture there is of turbulent water. Water at the mercy of circumstances. Always changing, always vulnerable, never rooted. The outcome is grim. He says, point blank, the one who does not believe, should not expect, will not receive from God. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. It's the assurance of what we don't yet see. And the indictment here is humiliating. James says that person who doubts is two-souled. They're spiritually schizophrenic. They, they won't rely wholly upon God. They are a walking civil war in which trust and distrust of God wage a continual battle against each other. It's a divided heart. And that's not faith. Paul describes Abraham when Abraham didn't understand all that God was doing as a man whose faith did not waver regarding the promise of God. It's not that doubt doesn't entice us. It's not that doubt doesn't tempt us. It's that we conclude that God is more powerful than that doubt. He's more reliable. The hymn writer kind of summarizes how we often think. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Don't you? Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it with thy spirit from above. Rescued thus from sin and danger, purchased by the Savior's blood, may I walk on earth a stranger as a son and heir of God. God is asking us to view him in the opposite way that we're told to view stocks in our mutual fund. Financial advisors tell us correctly that we should diversify our portfolio to maximize profits. Why? Because individual stocks are inherently risky. They're by nature unreliable, unstable. Therefore, diversification is prudent. But faith in God does the opposite. It calls us to put all of our reliance, all of our hopes in God. To switch metaphors, it, it tells us to build on one foundation the foundation of God, because all other ground is sinking sand. Again, switching metaphors, let me ask the question, are you putting all your eggs in one basket 
In other words, God's providence and wisdom? Or are you seeking to diversify your trust, to multiply your foundations? God's more than a vending machine. God's someone with whom we can have relationship. But God loves to give good gifts, including wisdom, to those who need it. And that's all of us. God calls us to choose joy in the middle of trials. God tells us that he's up to something good for our good, even when it hurts. As we conclude, I'd like you to watch a video of a couple in our church family. We, we filmed it less than two weeks ago. They've walked the valley. They've experienced James 1. And it's a different path than many of us have walked. All trials are not created equal, and we experience them uniquely in different ways. But all of us experience pain. All of us encounter grief. All of us need wisdom. All of us want hope. Little did this couple know less than two weeks ago that they would find themselves back in the hospital in the last few days, today, even this morning. But I'm confident that they still believe what they said then, that they'd still tell us today to trust in God for wisdom, for maturity, even for joy. Take a look. I'm Rob Johnson, and this is my wife, Cassie. Uh, we have been married for 30 years. Uh, we have three children, ages 16 to 27. I was diagnosed with uh, stage four breast cancer in early August uh, 2016, after I'd had a normal mammogram in May, and I'm still dealing with cancer today. So that was a pretty big shock. The other thing that was really difficult was when Rob had his heart attack. Yeah, so in 2018, uh, I had a heart attack that April. It was uh, difficult, to say the least, uh, to uh, overcome uh, that really dark reality. And it, to me, it was a break check. I don't think I've ever doubted God through this whole process. I knew that He was in control and that He's good. I've doubted myself that I would be able to persevere. And God has shown me that He is with me and with the Holy Spirit, I can persevere. When I start feeling maybe anxious or not sure of the next step, I've learned to read the Bible first. I have people praying for me. So even when I am in a lot of pain and I feel like I can't even put words together, I just remember there are people out there praying for me right now. And memorizing scripture, because sometimes when you're in uh, difficult situations, especially medically, you can't have a Bible with you that you pull out and read. And so if you can even memorize one verse that can help you get through difficult times, you can um, count on that. I would say that without a shadow of a doubt, God is always faithful to us. He has always given us hope, even in the darkest moments. When Cassie had seizures and we were in the hospital and heard really, really bad news. 
we just had no choice but to, to bow down before the Lord. And that was the same weekend that they had the last solar eclipse. So in the midst of the day, you know, the world was dimmed. And it was a dark moment, actually, but our hope was in God. And, and then when it was over, it was just a, another physical reminder that, that these things are temporary, that trials and tribulations pass, and that with God as our hope, we get through them all. I would say I learned that um, God is always with me. Even when I feel alone and I, I just remember and I hear God's voice saying, I am with you. I am with you. He's always with us. God has been with us constantly, but we've had fantastic friends, just brothers and sisters in Christ who have supported us. The church was with us and God was with us. My Christian friends have just surrounded me and our family. I don't know how anybody can go through trials in their lives without knowing Christ and belonging to a church family. Counting it all joy doesn't mean that you don't cry, doesn't mean you don't grieve, um, but in the midst of that, you know that you have a future joy ahead of you. You have um, joy in seeing other believers grow closer to God. You know that God is using this to help you to persevere um, and that we will see him face to face. And that that's the, the biggest joy. Trials and tribulations are the very things I think that God uses to drive us to a depth of intimacy in our relationship with the Lord that, that honestly I've never had. But in the midst of cancer and heart attack, that had we not had those, had I not had those, I would have never been able to experience the depth of the joy of knowing Him. And it, it completely changed the perspective of the situation that we deal with. It, it isn't easy, but He gets us through it because He is our reward. Having gone through trials makes you mature because you learn from those trials and tribulations. Like You know you've been there, and every new thing that comes up is just now just something else. It doesn't seem impossible. Honestly, without having the trials and tribulations, I don't know how you can mature. We're better for it. We're stronger. Al Eiton is another long-term presence in our church, long-term English teacher at Worthington Christian School. This past November 2020, he was diagnosed with liver cancer, given a few months to live, and everyone around him was sobered. My wife has been his long-term sub ever since. Al was a man who was familiar with trials, family, financial, health, hurt. But I have rarely seen a man so full of wisdom so full of godliness, so full of joy. Nine days before he died, I went to visit him with my two older children who had had him as a teacher. And he was giddy, giddy with joy and contentment because he knew his Savior. He knew his hope. And he knew that trials would not win. 
And he also knew how to face them. It was to know that they were coming. That God had sent them for good. In a publication from the school that came out around the time of his passing this winter, Al reminded us from his own life, if you're not in a storm, one is coming. The in-between times, those seasons of calm, are crucial periods of preparation for the next storm. And Al would say to us, friends, in the valleys of life, cling to a good God because he knows what he's doing with you. Tough times remind us of a generous God and of grand, grand purposes. Let's pray. In the quietness of your own heart, I would invite you just to pray to God. Say, God, here are the trials that I'm reminded of. Here's the trial that I'm in. And I'm not sure exactly how to handle it. I need wisdom. And I'm pretty sure I don't like it. But I need your power to help me to choose joy because you walk with me in the valley and you do good work. God, I pray for my friends, for my brothers and sisters. You know what's behind our faces. You know what's in our lives. That you would give us the courage and the trust that you're up to something good and you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.